Today's scripture comes from Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 37, and then we're going to flip to chapter 5, 11 through 16. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your, to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now for Acts 5, 11 through 16. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." This is God's word. Well, the arguments against Christianity are many, and they're varied. There's lots of different ones. Uh, but I think we most often hear two big arguments that are raised. Uh, and one is, you, I can't believe you believe X. Like, I can't believe that you believe that Jesus was both God and man. I, I can't believe that you believe that the Bible, written by many different authors over thousands of years, is the actual word of God. I, I can't believe that you believe that these moral issues are still important. I can't believe that you believe X. And you guys know those things, right? You probably have had conversations maybe with yourself. Like, I can't, I can't believe that I actually do believe that. Or, or maybe you've had conversations with friends and family members about that. And maybe those are things that you wrestled with yourself before you came to Christ. And like I said, many of us wrestle with those things still. That's, that's one big argument. It's a, it's a big bump 
for people who are trying to figure out whether they are, can figure out if they can jive with this Christianity thing or not. The other argument that we hear, and you guys have heard this before, is that Christians are hypocrites. You've heard that, right? That you guys actually don't believe or act the way that you say that Jesus act, acted. You, you don't really, uh, your lives don't look like the things that you profess. And those two arguments are really the, the two big ones. And the, the first one you would think would be the hardest one to overcome. I can't believe that you guys believe this because those things that they're talking about often run counter to our culture, right? It runs counter to the flow of everything around us, seems, where, the direction where everything around us seems to be going. I can't believe that you guys believe X, that you guys believe this thing. Now, that's actually not the most difficult uh, bump to get over in our current culture, though it is a challenge, it's not the beliefs that we hold so much as the way that we hold those beliefs. It's not the things that we believe, it's the way that we live our lives that are really the big speed bump for people to try to get over and try to figure out if they can even consider this Christianity thing. The things that we believe do run counter to this world system and they can seem, when we say, hey, we believe that, that, uh, that God became man and that he was born of a virgin and that he lived a sinless life and he died a death on the cross in order to pay for our sins, that we were sinners separated from God and that he rose again on the third day. He was dead in the grave, but yet he rose again and now he has seated the right hand of the Father and he's coming again. Like, that can sound outlandish to a lot of people because it is kind of an outlandish belief to the, to the worldly mind. It's, an outland, it's, a, it's kind of out there a bit. But it's not those beliefs. As Somebody may hear those things and say, man, I, I just don't believe those things. But you know, we live in a society where people believe a lot of different things and go a lot of different directions. And in our society, one of, the bases, one of the base values of our society is, hey, hey, you believe whatever you wanna believe and I'll believe whatever I wanna believe. And it can be whatever crazy thing that you wanna do. You can sleep with whoever, do whatever you wanna do as long as it doesn't affect me. And you guys can believe whatever crazy things you guys wanna believe. That's not really the thing that's most off-putting to the people around us. Because while the, the claims of Christianity can be offensive, and they are offensive, it offends our natural minds, the grace and love of Jesus is also magnetic. The grace and love of Jesus is attractive to people. It was when Jesus walked the earth. There were times where people didn't understand what he was saying. His own disciples weren't sure if they even could jive with what he was saying. But yet, there was something about his mannerism. There was something about his life, about the grace and truth and love that was evident in his life that was attractive to people. It, it pulled them in. And that's, it's not only been that way with Jesus, it's been that way with his, in the history of the Christian church. We see it in this passage today. That while our beliefs can be outlandish and off-putting to the people around us in some way, yet there's something magnetic and attractive about the grace and love of Jesus. And when Jesus is most present in his church, both the truth claims of Christ and the grace and love of Christ are both magnified to an extent that it is both incredibly unsettling to the community around us, but yet also incredibly magnetic and attractive to them at the same time. That's what we see in our, our passage today. And the sad part, though, is that while we as a church, when I say we as a church, maybe us and the Evangelical Christian Church of America, in America, while we've been pretty good about holding to our beliefs that make us different in the culture around us, 
the inerrancy of scripture, the truth claims of Christ, the the fact that he was God and that he did die and that he did rise again. While we've been really pretty good about holding those truth claims down, we've often done so in such a way that's minus the grace and love and humility of Jesus. Have you guys seen that online? Have you seen people who attack other Christians or attack non-Christians because they don't hold to the true claims of Scripture, but they attack them in such a way that is itself mean and mean-spirited? Why are we in America known more in our society for what we are against than who we are for and who is present and should be present in our midst? And that sullies our beliefs. But what I'm saying is the hypocrisy of Christians poisons what we actually do believe for the world around us. I'm gonna say that again. The hypocrisy of Christians actually poisons what we do and what we should believe for the world that's around us when our lives should beautify. That's an important word I want us to use this morning. Our lives should beautify what we believe, even when it's hard for the people around us to get on board. Our lives should beautify what we believe even when it's hard for people around us to swallow. That was true of Jesus and it was true of the early church and has been true of every awakened church and every awakened believer in history. In fact, it is the great answer to the extraordinary prayer that we looked at last week. When they said, God, you you see the state that we are in, you see the pressure that we have from outside the church, you see that we are insufficient. Now, God, look down, sovereign Lord, and come down and move. And you know what the answer was? The answer was that Jesus came down, but what he did is he beautified and empowered his church. The answer for us isn't to go out and do better and be better as Christians and as a church. Go out and be a better Christian. Go out and be a better church. When we think the answer is for us to be better and do better, we just get another merely human institution. And here's the thing about merely human institutions is because we as humans are broken, when we have an institution that is merely human, it will be deeply broken. It will be driven by unhealthy drives, it will be uh, success driven, we will use people and we will produce environments that are rife for abuse. But here's the truth. The church is no merely human institution. The church is no merely human institution. Yes, it involves humans, but it is drastically different than every other institution in the face of the earth because the church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ. It is the body of Jesus. It's not an institution. We don't gather here to be about Jesus. We're not here to to gather and say, hey, we remember some guy that was here 2,000 years ago and he was a great guy and he was God and we remember back to that guy and we're gonna talk about him. No, the church of Jesus is the the presence, is, is the dwelling place for the presence of Jesus Christ himself. We're not an institution about Jesus. We're not an institution based on Jesus's teaching or even his sacrifice. The church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ, the dwelling place or the temple of his spirit. Do you get that? 
The, the church isn't a place that you attend to sing songs or to hear sermons. It, the church is not a service. The church is not a service that we have. A church is not a group of like-minded individuals. It's not people who happen to think the same or happen to look the same. We're not gathered here to be an echo chamber for our own political or cultural uh, inclinations. The church is, this is what the church is and supposed to be. The church is a people gathered around and gathered by the presence of Jesus, the living God in our midst. Do you remember what Moses said in the passage that we, we mentioned last week? In Exodus 33, and God said, hey, I'll send you, I'll, I'll send you to the promised land. I promise you, I'll send an angel before you and you will conquer all your enemies, but I will not go with you. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Because, this is what he said in verse 16 of Exodus 33, for, listen to this, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and all your people? Is it not your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. It is the presence of God, not a creed that we hold to, that makes us distinct and different from the rest of the world around us. It is the presence of the living God in and among his people. And that truth is even greater now because God isn't present with us as his people enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant. He is now present and enthroned in the hearts of his people. He doesn't just dwell with us behind the veil of the tabernacle, but that veil has been rent in two by the sacrifice and work of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And when God's church, when the church here in Acts 4 prayed an extraordinary prayer in an extraordinary way at an extraordinary time, God answered it in an extraordinary way, and here's how he answered it. He visited his church. He, or he poured out his spirit afresh upon his church. He made himself, if you will, more present with his people. And how do we know that he did that? We know he did that because the church became more beautiful. It is God's presence among his people that beautifies his people. The presence and power of Jesus is made real to his people and it changes things. It, ch it changes things. It changes us. It changes us individually and it changes us corporately. And that's what we see the believers in Acts chapter 4 seeking. They say, God, we're facing incredible pressure. We don't have what it takes to face it. Please visit us. Show up in power. Make Jesus real through your church. And here's what I'm saying. And I don't, I don't think I can say this strong enough. That's what we need in our church. That's what we need in the church. That's what our community needs from us. It's the only hope for the American church. It's what you need. It's what you need in your life. Awakening, revival, renewal happens on an individual level. It's called, but we call it an awakening or revival when it happens upon a multitude of people. And it's the longing of your soul. 
If you're a Christian gathered here this morning, it's the longing of your soul, the stirring and the aching that's in your heart while I'm talking today and last week is the Spirit of God stirring within you. Saying that the great need, our great need is to give ourselves to seeking the Lord for an outpouring of his presence. And we've seen in our pastor today what, a little bit of what that looks like. What does it look like when the extraordinary prayers of God's people are answered? Well, the first thing we see here in this passage, we see a glorious mystery. We see a seeking and sovereignty. We see a people who are seeking God and we see the sovereignty of God. We see all the amazing things that happen after the prayer, right? Sovereign Lord, they prayed. Look down upon us, stretch out your hand. Give us boldness and stretch out your hand to heal through Jesus. And we see amazing things happen after they prayed. The place shook. God gave them boldness. They were freshly filled with God's spirit. And then we read how God beautified the church after that. And we see a, a move of God himself. And we have to ask, like, would that have happened if they hadn't prayed? and sought the Lord the way they did? Well, the answer is no. It wouldn't have. But yet, we also say, was it the prayer that caused it? Like, did they convince God? Like, to, did they bend his arm and like, force the, the moment and force him to answer the prayer? Did, is that what caused God to move? No, if they hadn't prayed, we wouldn't have seen the prayer answered. That, should, that makes logical sense. But it wasn't the prayer itself that caused God to move. What we see at play here is that it was a, a sovereign move of a sovereign God. Remember how they answered, opened their prayer? In verse 24 of Acts 4, they, when they heard about the threatenings, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They said, they open their prayer by acknowledging that he alone is the sovereign God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that was within them. They address him, God, we need you, the sovereign Lord, to move sovereignly in our midst. And when they did that, they were following the pattern of God's people and following God's instructions, what God calls us to do when we need to awaken from our slumber and, uh, and, finally, and we find fresh our need for him. In Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, it says, for thus says the Lord, this is when the, the God's people were in captivity in Babylon. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This is the verse we all take out of context and put on like coffee mugs and stuff. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then, listen to this, he's instructing them what to do. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when what? When you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. He's saying, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver you, but you have to come and cry out to me with all of your hearts. 
And when you do, when you come and seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations. In Isaiah 62, verse six and seven, it says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. And this is what he says, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. God is sovereign and he moves sovereignly, but he calls us to call upon him and seek him with all of our heart and to give him, he commands us the way he commanded Israel, give him no rest until he answers our prayer. Our seeking of a, our seeking God is stirred by a sovereign hand in our heart. In fact, it's our seeking of God that is actual beginning of awakening. The persistent prayer is an assurance of the answer because it's what God calls us to do. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for God to look upon them. They prayed for God to give them boldness and to stretch out his hand in a miraculous way. And God answered that prayer by shaking the place, by filling them anew with the Holy Spirit and by granting them boldness. When God moves sovereignly upon a people, He gives people awareness of the fact that he is a sovereign God. An outpouring of God's spirit brings a sense of awe upon his people that we are not just a people who are gathered here to do a little service or to try to live a better life or to try to be good people or good Christians or good citizens. There's a sense that the Holy One is in our midst. And awe comes upon a people when God begins to pour out his spirit. It says it there in chapter five, it says in verse 11, and great fear or great awe came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. That's the same thing that happened in Acts chapter two when God first poured out his spirit upon the church and awe came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. That's the effect that Jesus has on people whenever he shows up. John, who had walked with Jesus and was very acquainted with him, yet whenever he appeared to him on the Isle of Patmos, he fell before him as one who was dead. That's the effect that Jesus has on people. There's, and there's no imitating a true outpouring of God's spirit. When God shows up, there's no mistaking it for a work of man. People know it. But we, I once heard a story about a, from a guy who, from Africa who said that, and this is back in the, the day when we, you know, when this was more prevalent in America, but he said that uh, he grew up with, he grew up in South Africa where they had like fresh oranges and they had fresh orange juice all the time. When they would have Americans come and visit and they would taste this orange juice, they would say, that's terrible. 
because they were used to like our concentrated orange juice or tang or some, some sort of substitute. They weren't used to the real thing. And we as American evangelical Christians have been weaned to accept something lesser than the presence of God in the midst of his people. We'd like a band to work us up or a great communicator to stir us so I can go home and feel like I had some goosebumps or something ha- happened today, something was exciting. But when God's presence shows up, there is no imitating it. There is no question when it happens. Everyone in the room knows what is happening, even if they can't explain it. There is no imitating it. People know it because God creates something that is beyond the capability of man. God does something that supersedes the limitation of men and, of, and women. We've settled for far too long for church that can be explained by human ingenuity. Why is that church over there growing? Oh, they got a great band, or they have that great facility, or they have that great communicator, or the area around them is growing, or this or that. We have a way to explain why it happens. When, when God moves, there's no way to explain it except the fact that God, Jesus Christ himself, is in our midst. There's nothing that's so invigorating, though, to the sp- and exciting to the spirit of God that dwells within us. You know what the spirit inside us says? He says, let's set this thing up so that Jesus gets all the glory. You think when Elijah said, hey, let's douse this altar 12 times with water, do you think that God's spirit was suddenly concerned or nervous because the altar was wet? He says, yeah, douse the altar. It'll just give me a chance to show my glory greater. And we say, there's so few of us here. The people around us are so resistant. Coastal is so dark. The spirit of God within us says it's only kindling for Jesus to be magnified. If you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will hear and I will answer. And you know what the answer is? The answer is God's presence. It's not a strategy. It's not an idea, it's not a building, it's not a better band or a better preacher. It is God's presence in and among his people. Do you remember what happened when, that, when they prayed that prayer? It says the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Why did God shake the building that they were in? He did it because he was telling them this is gonna be a move that was unquestionably God. He did it to give them a confidence that God had heard them and he was answering. The answer to the prayer was the visitation of God and it is a visitation of God that brings an awakening to his people and beautifies his church. No one has to tell you when God pours out his presence and visits his church. And there's no working it up. There's no performance. It just happens. I was reading this week in my, in my devotion whenever they dedicated the temple with Solomon and the priests. And yeah, 
they had all they had this amazing ceremony. They said they were sacrificing so many animals outside the temple that it was nobody could count it. But you know what happened when they prayed the prayer? The cloud filled the space, filled the temple, so that the priests could not stand. It was the work of God. When Jesus is present, he transforms a church. That's the answer to their great prayer. In verse 32 to verse 37, it says, Now, when the full number of those who believed, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things, read this with fresh ears, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 11 of chapter five, and great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. And now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And none of the rest, those who were outside the church, dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. You know what we see here is that we see a powerful and grace-filled church. After they prayed an extraordinary prayer, God answered it by sending a visitation of his spirit, an outpouring of his spirit upon them. And we see a powerful and a grace-filled church. The apostles spoke with power and clarity of Jesus. They gave testimony to the resurrection. We see the believers together in unity and love where they don't, no one de declares that what they have is their own. They were freely sharing it with each other and there was not a needy person among them. There was a sacrificial lifestyle of the believers. We see in response to the the prayer that was prayed and God visited them is that the answer was like, we've so long, we've fought the culture around us. We've celebrated, we've like hit on them for what's wrong. We've talked about the immorality of the culture around us. We bemoan the, the political stance and the cultural place that we're in, the moral place that the society is around us. And too often we've been a church against culture. Or we try to be a church that's for the culture. We use commercial tactics to try to do better and be better, offer a more appealing product to the community around us. Or we try to be a church that kind of blends in with the culture and say, well, you may as well attend us because we're not that much different than any other thing that you're involved in. But the presence of Jesus offers something different. He causes us, he makes us into a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live in this culture under his rule and reign. God beautifies his church. When God visits and pours out his spirit upon a church, it becomes beautiful because Jesus is beautiful. 
Jesus alone is gracious and sovereign. He is the caretaker of the poor. He's the forgiver of the greatest sin. He is strong enough to protect the weak and gentle enough to invite the lowliest in. He confounds the strong. He frustrates the self-righteous. He loved to his death and he loves us still. He loves the dead to life. He is gracious to the uttermost and he is drawn to the broken and they are drawn to him. There is no one like Jesus. And whenever he visits his church, he awakens and he beautifies his church. He awakens his people to his glories and he makes his presence and power known among his people and we begin to look and smell of him. Nobody says, hey, come listen to my amazing preacher. Come look at, listen, visit my amazing church. We say, come see the amazing Jesus. That's what the body of Christ is made to be. That's what the church is made to be. The dwelling place of Jesus on earth where we collectively together exhibit what it means like to see Jesus and what it means to, to live under his gracious and loving and powerful rule and reign. Why would we accept attending a service and picking a church because we like that preacher or we don't like their music? Instead of being about Jesus, he changes his church, he beautifies them with his presence. And whenever that happens, when a church is beautified by the presence of Jesus, it always, 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 always impacts the surrounding community. But it impacts them only the way that Jesus can impact it. Did you hear that in the passage? It says that the whole people around them, they dared not join them. You know what it means? It's saying they didn't understand what they were about. They didn't understand this Jesus thing, these beliefs they're talking about, the gospel. They didn't understand it. They kept them at arm's length. Yet it says also they held them in high esteem. And we see that throughout Acts, and we see that throughout the history of the church, that the culture around us doesn't understand what we believe. They don't know if they can jive with that. I don't know if I'm on board with this Jesus thing, but yet the life of Jesus, the smell and the flavor of Jesus emanates from the church. And they say, man, but I wish I did. That's what the church should look like. The church should look like a people... Uh, from the outside who look at it and say, I don't know that I believe what you believe, but oh, I wish it was true. I wish I could. Because I see a joy and a peace in you. I see a, a love and a humility in you. I see you living a, a, in, a, in a morality that is above the people around you, but yet I also see you doing so in, in utter humility and graciousness, reaching out to the poor and the broken. We see that the, the, the effect of God's pouring out his spirit upon his church is that we see a powerful witness in evangelism. We see the believers go out and we see non-believers come in. We see the believers go out to reach their neighbors and family and friends, but we also see non-believers come in. It says that from their cities and villages surrounding Jerusalem, they gathered in to see what was going on. They gathered in to experience the presence of Jesus. 
Many continued to come to faith even when the community around them didn't understand. They were held in awe and fear of the people or those around them, yet the community around them held them in high esteem because there was a vitality and a power because Jesus was present in and through his church. Whenever that happens, evangelism changes. I don't have to go out and try to convince you guys, hey, go out and act like Jesus. Like me as the preacher, try to guilt you guys into go out and act like Jesus. Be a better Christian. Get out there and try to sell Jesus. Like we do evangelism courses where I teach you how to like, this is how you go out and you sell Jesus to people around you. And we try to have to try to trick and guilt people into Jesus. And when God pours out his spirit upon a church, you experience him for yourself and you go out and you invite others to do the same. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. You see what happens when Jesus beautifies his church and he pours out his spirit? The poor and needy are served. There was not a needy person among them. Imagine if poverty in the church of Jesus Christ in America, there was not a needy Christian in America because of the glad and generous hearts of those who had found Jesus to be the greatest treasure and that way they didn't have, that for that reason, they didn't have to clutch to the earthly treasures anymore. Imagine what kind of effect that would have to the community around us. Imagine if Jesus was so present in our midst that there were people who were both from inside the church and outside the church who were being healed. The sick and the afflicted are healed when Jesus shows up. When Jesus' church is awakened by his presence, he is present in and through them to the community and that's what people need to see. That's what they need to experience. Oh, how we need him. What we've been saying last week and this week is this. That there's no, with all the pressures that we face culturally in our current country and all the pressures that we face today, there is no answer. We've tried everything else. There's no other answer and there should be no other answer than for us to cry out to God that he pours out his spirit and visits his church afresh and anew. And what I'm saying is that's what I wanna be about, that's what I hope we are about as a church, that we're gonna be a church that seeks the Lord so that our neighbors can see Jesus. The pressure isn't for you to go out from here and be a better Christian. There's no guilt involved here. It's just saying, hey, let's cry out to the Lord and see what happens. Because I know this, he told us, if we seek him with all of our heart, we'll be found by him. 
And here's the assurance that will happen. The assurance that we will be found by him is found in the person and the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus loved us so much. He gave his life for us. He shed his blood for us. And that sacrifice and that love is so powerful. He continually brings us into himself no matter what we have done. That's the beauty of the table that we get to celebrate every week as believers. You know, we already have a meal together every week. We gather together to feast upon the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for us. And it is a reminder every single week that you don't clean yourself up to come to him or to remain in him. It is his sacrifice and his shed blood that, that invites you to come in and holds you there, no matter what. And so this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, we're getting ready to celebrate communion. There's gonna be two stations, one on each side. You can gather from the outside. You'll be handed the, uh, the cracker, which is the body of Christ for you, and you'll be handed the cup, which is the blood of Christ for you. You can return to your seat and partake of it. Remember this morning, and experience and enjoy this morning that Jesus always brings you in. And that's the assurance that when we will always, that he will be found by us when we seek him because he sought us out first. And if this morning you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, don't partake of communion. That is a meal for believers, but see me or see somebody besides you and tell, you, tell them, I need today, I need to follow Christ and become a Christian. We'll be glad to, help you with that. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to come forward and uh, offer communion to you. You come as you see fit as we finish worshiping together. Lord, I thank you for your graciousness to us in Christ Jesus. I thank you that you haven't called us to be better or do better, but simply to experience your presence in our midst. I thank you for the beauty of the gospel that invites us in. And God, I pray that you would make us a people who seek you with all of our heart so that our neighbors and family members might see Jesus. And it's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen.